0: Hello and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we will be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Hi everybody and a big welcome back from the holidays and wishing you all the best in 2023. We've called the January 10th edition of Macro Minute, Can't, Won't, Don't Stop. And while that's a reference to an old school Beastie Boys song, it does seem like an appropriate characterization of current central bank policy. So there is ample debate surrounding near-term policy increments and terminal values for various countries. So today we have myself, Blake and Peter to opine on these topics along with Elsa on the US dollar and Michael Tran on the oil market where prices are down sharply from the peak and is one of the critical components for inflation dynamics this year. So to start off uh, today's discussion, I'm going to talk about the situation in Canada. So since our last call in early December, the data in Canada has pushed the market from pricing basically an equal chance of 25 or no change to almost fully pricing in a 25 basis point rate hike at the next Bank of Canada meeting on January 25th. It is difficult to argue with this pricing given the evolution of the recent data we've seen and specifically the CPI data where the three-month annualized trends in core inflation were stickier than expected. Q4 growth is shaping up to be better than expected based on the October monthly GDP data and the now-cast estimate for November And uh, third, the labour market has posted two strong readings in the past three months. Now despite market pricing being very close to 25 basis points, I would say nothing is a lock for the next meeting. The Bank of Canada has shown a penchant uh, for surprising the market in the past year. So all possibilities, whether that's 0, 25 or 50, are possibly uh, live options for the next meeting. The upcoming data, uh, specifically the CPI report next week, and the business and consumer outlook surveys, they could sway market pricing to either side of 25, but they're unlikely to cause a reaction that would lead to something extreme, i.e. 0 or 50 as far as market pricing. And I would say the business outlook survey is probably more important than the CPI data, and the risks there are probably slanted to an outcome that leads market participants to increase their bets for a 50 basis point move. But I, mean, I think importantly, regardless of whether the BOC hiked uh, 25 or 50 at the next meeting or if they did two consecutive 25s, uh, we do think duration can perform pretty well in 2023, especially as the Fed nears the end of its uh, hiking cycle also. So just to put it in perspective, uh, U.S. bonds, they have posted a positive total return performance in the three to 12 months following the completion of every rate tightening cycle we've seen back to the early 1980s. So I think even in a higher for longer scenario for policy rates uh, for Canada or or even possibly the US, I do think duration can perform uh, okay in Canada in 2023. And some final thoughts on the curve and Canada-US spreads. The uh, CAD curve we think should stay uh, deeply inverted and any steepening moves should be faded until uh, the rate cutting cycle unfolds, which we don't think will happen in 2023. And on Canada-US spreads, they have adjusted sharply over the past month, but we don't see CAD outperformance continuing from here. Um, With that, I'll turn it over to Blake to tell us about uh, the Fed and the bond market.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jason. So in the US, I think positioning is pretty clean to start the year, just to the degree that we haven't really seen big thematic trade ideas or positioning for most of the clients we talk to fairly light. I think perhaps one point of evidence to that fact is that we've got 74% of investors in the J.P. Morgan All Client Survey saying they're neutral on duration, which, you know, if you look back to 2011, is pretty close to the highest level that we've seen in that survey. So a lot of people kind of coming into this year fairly neutral in the U.S. rate space. To the extent there has been, you know, a somewhat crowded trade so far this year, it's probably fading 2023 cup pricing. The pain on those trades over the last week led to some cleaning out of those positions. And again, I think we're back to a place where positioning is fairly clean. Steepeners, particularly in forward space, also coming back in vogue. But overall, even there, I think the, the actual action on some of those positions is still relatively light. You know, a lot of this uh, kind of light positioning, you know, lack of kind of big ideas, big themes, big conviction, is that markets are kind of stuck between a chop between two themes. On the one hand, you've got, you know, the Fed's pivot from inflation data to labor markets that's occurred over the last month or so, which basically means that these kind of near-term hawkish risks aren't really dead despite the softening of inflation data we've seen. The Fed can kind of maintain this hawkish bend, and I think there's still these upside hawkish risks that exist as long as labor markets remain tight and the labor market data remains strong, even if we're seeing CPI prints, inflation data starting to soften. So you've got that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you've got this steam around expectations for an economic slowdown and cutting cycle later, this year, And those two things are kind of playing against each other. And I think kind of setting the two sides of these ranges that we're in. Interestingly, fast money, I think, is kind of tended towards the former more on kind of the fading of cut pricing and, and really thinking the Fed is going to be more hawkish over the next year where you've got real money looking more at that kind of cutting cycle and kind of more focused on that steep inner side of those two themes. Far apart, I think the, the back and forth between these may persist and uh, keep rates somewhat range bound for some time, even if that range is relatively wide. Anytime we see 10s dropping down towards something around 350, you know you start hearing from many people that they're too rich and I think short interest comes out. But conversely, anytime we, we try to really back up and you see 10s heading back to, to 4%, there's a lot of active demand to buy at those kind of higher levels. So that kind of keeps 10s chopping around inside of this you know, what's called 350, 385 type Of range. Part of this is due to the fact that, you know, on both of these themes, there's some potential delays before we really get confirmation on either one of them. On the cut side, you know, markets are really only willing to trust Fed guidance out, you know, let's call it three to six months on not cutting, despite their, you know, persistence that they're going to hold rates higher. You know, markets just seem very unwilling to accept anything they have to say about that. And it really may just take time before we really get to a place where that cut pricing can really more meaningfully fade. You know, despite the fact that we've had market participants, Fast Money in particular, trying to push against that, you know, it's just going to be a long time before we see enough data to really convince us that, you know the fed's going to be in a place where they're not uh, uh cutting rates late this year. On the other side of it on the kind of near term hawkishness, even there there may be some delays till we really get some confirmation on uh where that terminal rate is. Markets have been pretty well pinned pricing a, a terminal below 5%. Uh you know for our part we we still see a 5 and a quarter uh, 5 and an eighth term you know this march um, but if the Fed does slow down to a 25 basis point pace of hikes at the February meeting, which, you know, is the most likely probability price into markets right now, if they do step down to that pace, it could stretch out the arrival at that five and an eight terminal rate and really push out. Um, you know, per- push out the timing that markets would have to reconcile uh, with a- with an above 5% terminal rate, it could push that out several months um, because you really wouldn't arrive at that rate until May at a 25 basis point pace. So unless they go 50 at the at the uh, February meeting, it's possible that that gets stretched out longer and we're kind of wondering, uh, you know, how high that terminal rate can go and markets just kind of refusing uh, to price in anything above 5%. So uh, I'll stop there and, and pass it along.
0: Okay, thanks a lot, Blake. Um, Over to Peter to tell us about the situation in UK or Europe.
1: Yeah,
2: thank you. Um, And uh, first of all, Happy New Year from my side as well. What I have in mind for today is uh, essentially sort of uh, talk about three topics. First, the development of the energy markets. Secondly, the implication for inflation and the inflation and numbers that have been released. And then thirdly, the impact on the central banks and the upcoming meetings. Um, I'll finish off by uh, reiterating uh, where we see value in the market. So first of all, um, energy markets uh, have been a crucial linchpin of the situation for Europe for the obvious reasons. And the development um, since we last recorded this has been a fairly dramatic Dramatic drop. Um, this dramatic drop comes essentially from three angles. Uh, one is that, um, as was previously uh, suggested, the um, ultimate demand for energy has um, come down quite significantly, particularly on the continent of Europe. Secondly, therefore, um, the storage levels um, of gas in particular are relatively high. Um, and then, thirdly, um, with a bit of luck, uh, the weather has been relatively mild, and, and therefore the typical season and pa- seasonal patterns have been much weaker than they otherwise have been. Um, and what we currently see is that gas, but also um, power prices, are coming down to levels sometimes um, where they where they have been before the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. Now, this is obviously relatively good news um, for the. European economies. Um, And the implication is that inflation has been released much lower um, than where it was previously expected. It was always expected to come down, but it came down much more. Now, full disclosure, yes, we do calculate in the special effects that come from the German subsidies um, on gas prices for December. And yes, I am fully aware that um, the core rate of inflation has still increased, and I'll say something about that in a second. Um, but nevertheless, inflation has come down, and when you look across uh, Europe, particularly sort of in places like Spain, it has come down, and where the impact of lower wholesale prices to retail prices is much faster. We think that will continue, um, and uh, we have said on numerous occasions that um, inflation will continue to decelerate. Um, And I do think that with a bit of time delay, also core inflation will start to decelerate as well. Whether that's already going to be the case in January when some of these special effects um, reverse remain to be seen, but over the course of Q1 and H1, uh, I'm absolutely confident that this will happen. So where does it leave us in terms of central banks? Now, what you what you will have seen is that particularly the ECB has been very hawkish, and um, they have um, talked continuously about the. Um, underlying inflation pressures tightness of the labor market Um, just yesterday a new report was released where the stress was on wage developments going forward so we can expect that they will continue to remain on the hawkish side um, when they speak Um, and uh, it's likely they're going to hike rates another 50 basis points. The question is whether they will get to the implied now 350 which would require another 1.5 percentage point increases in the deposit rate. Equally for the Bank of England um, we have seen already a three-split vote um, at the last time round. We think that they will hike 50 basis points in the February meeting, but uh, the question is also whether they are going to decelerate, and we think that is likely indeed. So, whether does that leave us for markets? One of the things that we have pointed out is that we think that the short end of the, particularly the sterling curve, but also the euro curve, offers value. Um, the the euro curve hasn't really played ball, the sterling curve has. So we still think that this is the case. We still like asset swap tighteners against the onslaught of issuance that is typical in the beginning of the year in Europe. Um, and also one of the other elements and that I point out, that against this um, view that the terminal rate is unlikely going to be shifted significantly higher, implied volatility has also come down. We have expected that. We have been recommending um, short straddles and strangles, and I still think that this is a very good idea. So with that, I'll hand back to Jason.
0: Okay, uh, great stuff, Peter. Uh, Over to Elsa to talk about the swings in the U.S. dollar recently and uh, why it doesn't feel like a typical January.
3: Great, thanks, Jason. So, from our perspective, it's been an interesting start to the year. There's been a very strong consensus heading into 23 that the U.S. dollar is going to go down, and yet it started um, against plan, and I think a lot of people got caught out by the price action last week. Where I think clients are really struggling at the moment is translating some of those rates moves that Peter and Blake and Jason discussed into the effects environment. If for example, the Bank of England is more hawkish than expected, is that really a positive outlook for sterling? Where we'd prefer to focus on is the impact of the withdrawal of central bank liquidity and what that means for countries with high external deficits. If we look at the moment across the universe of both G10 and EM, there are certain countries that have been incredibly reliant on what has been called the generosity of strangers, so whether that's the UK or in Latam, Chile, Colombia, where the current account deficits are eye-watering in many cases, and we think there's a good opportunity to play those as shorts against either neutral or long current account surplus currencies on the other side. In G10, one trade we like at the moment is long Um In LATAM, we're biased towards short Copi and short Chile, and looking at long Brazil um, and perhaps long necks on the other side of it. In general, though, it's a very tricky environment to take directional views on rates and effects, and we're just far more interested in playing those longer-term relative value trades. For the week ahead, we've gone with long Aussie CAD as we look for that reopening trade gathering steam um, in China and Aussie being a real beneficiary of that with the thawing in relations, Um, coal orders coming back through from China and that playing out with a slightly firmer currency. I'll leave it there and pass back to Jason.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Um, last up, uh Michael, to enlighten us on the oil market.
4: Great. Thanks, Jason. And uh good morning, everyone. Now to understand where the oil market is headed, I think we first need to take a step back and just quickly consider what we've learned over the tumultuous year that was 2022. So to kick off, I think really last year, the way to describe it is last year was the year of two oil markets. The first half of the year was one that I describe as fundamentally driven, one that was driven by supply, demand, crack spreads, inventories. Then there was a distinct shift in the second half of the year towards a policy-driven market. Now, the biggest drivers in oil pricing over the course of the second half of last year were all really qualitative or policy-driven themes, everything ranging from OPEC policy which changed multiple times, to Biden's historic degree of SPR releases or his potential ban on refined product exports, to the EU embargo on Russian energy price caps, to China's COVID-0 policy. You know, we had Iranian nuclear negotiations again in the second half of last year and on and on. The bottom line here is that much of what drove oil pricing in the second half of last year were government and or geopolitical policy um, rather than just true supply and demand fundamentals of the oil market, and I can tell you that fundamentally driven oil market participants loathe trading policy. So what we saw was policy paralysis that led to positioning paralysis, and this is why liquidity in WTI fell by 40 percent, or was about 40 percent below normal levels for much of the second half of last year and as we all know low volumes traded equals higher volatility. Now the positive news here is that we believe that there's a policy de-risking happening. So, for example, we're through midterm elections. Of course, Biden's major SPR releases are likely over. They're actually buying back now. Um, Iranian nuke discussions are clearly dead. Price caps on Russian energy are in. China is now trying to reopen. So, we're de-risking the adverse policy scares here. So, over the coming months, I anticipate that the focus of the market will move away from the qualitative policy-driven noise and back towards the fundamental drivers of the oil market, which should drive oil prices back to an eight-handle in the first half of the year, in our opinion, versus trending into in the mid-low $70 barrel mark right now. I think the major themes this year will be number one, tight global inventory, number two, the lack of future supply growth, and number three, um, resilient demand so far, despite uh, waiting for a potential recession. Now, I think what's important is while we largely believe that China's reopening will be felt in the second half of this year, we've already seen Chinese import data pick up meaningfully already in December, and India is putting up some of the strongest oil demand numbers um, on their, on record for them. Um, that said, the dark cloud of potential weak demand concerns will just continue to weigh on investors, and I would be remiss if I didn't address recession risk and what that means for the oil market. So, breaking this down quickly, historically, during meaningful global recessions in the past, like in 08, oil demand contracts for five consecutive quarters falling by 2.2%. Now, given our view that we believe that WTI could average $86 a barrel for the first half of this year, of course, back-end weighted, by our modeling, fair value for a recession is about $68 a barrel WTI or so. So I could argue that we think that there is risk asymmetry in this market um, with the market largely having um, a significant amount of the recessionary impact uh, already priced in. But with that, why don't I pause there and pass it back to to Jason.
0: Okay, great. Uh, Thank you very much, everybody. And thank you, everybody, for joining this edition of Macro Minutes. I would say to reiterate one of our messages from late last year that uh, 2023 you know, it could turn out to be as challenging as 2022, um, but for different reasons as markets transition from higher rates uh, to the next stages of uh, policy cycles, which could show significant cross-country differences and impact uh, relative uh, asset markets. So stay tuned to our publications or reach out to us directly in the interim uh, for any additional uh, insights.
1: This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.